0: film was lit reporting for duty this is danny gray lord and joining me is my co-host laura sierra six
1: gray lord
0: that's right she hyphenated <laughs> everyone stop asking
1: <laughs> that's true Stop
0: asking. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Film is Lit. This is the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or television adaptation. My real name is Danny. I'm the self-appointed film expert.
1: And I am Laura Sheher, the self-appointed lit expert. Thanks for having us back in your inbox. (laughs) Yeah.
0: It's been a while. Welcome to season eight eight we took a long break after the end of season seven but we are back this season is going to be a blast we have a lot of guest hosts Mm -hmm. those are always fun yeah we have a lot of cool quirky picks for this season that you won't see coming a few surprises here and there Mm -hmm. we also have the return of one of our favorite special episodes the books that should be movies episode. So we're going to do part two of that. We did part one all the way back in series three, I believe. Yeah. Whoa.
1: Yeah, it's been a while. Long time ago. And that was just one of those that we threw in there because we were like, I don't know that we're prepared for another book movie episode. And we were just like, well, you know, maybe a special episode is going to be a hit. And it was a slam dunk. Everyone loved it.
0: It's our biggest hit by a huge margin, actually.
1: Although I don't think any of the books that we mentioned have been developed yet <laughs> i don't know they
0: will be one of them i think that you mentioned is in production one of them that i mentioned yeah
1: oh well i think that had already been announced i think by the time i it was ignorance that... still counts <laughs> Okay. anyways anyway. it was
0: what we called a happy accident that episode so part mm, two is coming yeah. up soon But let's just get to this episode, the first episode of season eight. Can you believe it? Eight seasons?
1: Yeah, I don't think that we thought this would last past the pandemic, but we enjoyed enough to just keep going. Keep on trucking. Yeah. Yeah. This is what
0: we do now. Yeah. This is our weekend. We quit
1: our jobs. Yep. (laughs)
0: This This is our main job. Anyway. It hasn't been monetized yet. (laughs) Right. But we will. We believe in it. Yeah, we believe in it. We will make money on it someday, probably in 2030. (laughs) well the gray man mm-hmm. so this is a special episode because we have a little bit of a personal connection this goes into journeys let's yeah. get right into journeys J- personal journeys. With yep it. so back in 2021 i had the distinct pleasure to have a very small microscopic role in the making of this film i'm the lowest on the totem pole oh,
1: you're selling yourself short
0: but I work as a stage manager in LA, and Netflix shot three scenes of The Gray Man at my stage. And so yeah. I helped out with the production. I helped out with uh, specifically the virtual production mm-hmm. aspect of the movie. Mm-hmm. And most of the material that was shot at our stage uh, was looks good. Uh, there, <laughs> I have a few criticisms here and there. I, I'm not going to just pretend like everything is perfect with this film or the effects, but I had the pleasure of meeting a lot of people on the crew, working with them. Uh, including being, some
1: talent yeah being
0: mentored by some people not the talent <laughs> but you did
1: get to meet them though
0: i got to meet them but not be mentored sure. by okay
1: continue ryan
0: gosling is not my best friend or my mentor <laughs> as much as if I... he
1: had met you and spent a lot of time with you he would have been your best friend
0: he i met him i <laughs> took his temperature when he entered the stage
1: <laughs> i love that
0: i'm the de facto covid mm-hmm. compliance officer i um, at my <laughs> stage so That was about as much as interaction I had with Ryan Gosling and and Chris Evans as well, too, to name drop. Um,
1: Trash-tash Chris (laughs) Evans. (laughs) And
0: uh, the directors, Joe and Anthony Russo, who are huge inspirations Mm -hmm. for both of us uh, in their careers. They went from comedy to Marvel action flicks to now they're just making whatever the hell they want. Mm -hmm. What careers these two had. We're going to talk a little bit about that Mm -hmm. later. But yeah, so I have this personal connection both Laura and I are biased to this film. We're not going to pretend like we're not at mm-hmm. all. Like we're laying our cards out on the table right now mm-hmm. at the start. However, both of us genuinely think the film is worth watching and mm-hmm. doesn't deserve the not vitriolic reviews, but the reviews for this movie are not good.
1: They look warm. Yeah. Yeah. To, to middling to yeah, low
0: <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah and we think this is a fun romp of yeah, a film it, it's yeah. very funny the lines are very well written some of them are a little cliched but it's the genre you know yeah. it, it's this genre it kind of writes itself at some times yeah so
1: there are 12 novels in the gray, yeah. In the gray man. i mean how much can you reinvent when right. there's a whole genre around military slash CIA slash yeah. spy fiction. <laughs> so
0: yeah, Laura and I, I'm speaking for you right now, but we're kind of perplexed a little bit at the reception for this film. And look, this ain't Citizen Kane. Right. This ain't Rear Window. Right. But it's pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. Like it, it is fun. I, if anything, it's fun. Okay.
1: Well, it's one of those things where, yes, we had, we're a little bit biased. You had a good time on the production. But it's a delight when you go into something. And we feel like we're critical enough of things where we're not going to say that something's good. Um, Plenty of stuff that's filmed at your studio has not been incredible. Yeah. But it's a delight when you show up and you're only expecting a Mm run-of-the-mill spy thriller. And you come out and you're like... I was laughing really hard at that. That was not only fun, but also very smart in certain places. Mm-hmm. And there are... I- I'm perplexed about why Chris Evans is ever playing a non-ville at this point. Yeah. Like, why is he, he... We loved him in Knives Out. Right. And we love him in this movie. And I think that this movie makes a lot of really, like, smart choices about how to, like... I, I don't know, is, like, elevate too big of a word to use. I think this like elevates the spy thriller genre a little well, bit. Well,
0: it seems like elevate is too big of a word for like all the snobby critics out there, but not for us.
1: Well, cuz like think about it. If you think about like if you put this into context with a bunch of other spy thrillers, like what do we we have like Jack Ryan, which I think is like pulpy. And I think 007 does some to elevate the obviously like skyfall does something to elevate the genre but mm-hmm. like
0: casino royale casino well. royale
1: but you know quantum of solace does nothing to it don't so say it's that like, name
0: <laughs> don't don't invoke quantum <laughs> well, of solace to
1: my point i think that there's a lot of it's really easy to go down a pulpy road with these mm-hmm. um and especially because they're based on pulp fiction like mm-hmm. you know military again and like mm mm-hmm. mill mil as right. i found out this genre is called like that tom clancy novels lee child clearly mark Greeny, who is following in their footsteps like mm-hmm. that's their bread and butter
0: mm-hmm. um, I, I will say i i'm a fan of lee child books i haven't read any of the jack ryan books actually or have seen the show i know that that show is highly regarded but still i think this genre it may not be your bread and butter, but this is exactly my jam. The, ass- <laughs> your the jam. Ass- yeah. The assassin on the run from their own agency, and the agency frames that assassin and gets other hit squads to hunt down the assassin. This is a very specific genre that has tons of movies and TV shows that are currently doing it right now. It's experiencing a resurgence. So there's this movie. There's Killing Eve on the BBC, which mm-hmm. I enjoy quite a lot. There is The Old Man starring Jeff Bridges on Hulu that just came out. That show is pretty good. There's The Terminalist with Chris Pratt, which is on Prime right now. I haven't seen that, but I know a few of my friends watch that and like that. So, v- right now in 2022, this genre is popping off.
1: Yeah, I, but like, I guess to like wrap up my point, I think. To your point, there's a lot out there. Yes. And this is leagues above for the reasons that I think we'll spend the podcast episode discussing. (laughs) Yes. I think one of the things that it does is not take itself too seriously. Yep. And I think, you know, as this genre has history in being very self-conscious, or non-self-conscious, I should say, you know, like taking itself way too seriously and being like so violent and so like traditional that that's something that this genre can use a little bit of is like Mm -hmm. kind of poking self poking fun a little bit at itself because at its core these things aren't real like everyone knows that these things are like so purely fiction that you know, you gotta laugh a little bit at like how stupid some of these plot lines are.
0: Yeah. Um, it's ridiculous, absurd and undeniably cheesy at times, but it is streamlined. It never takes itself too seriously. Like you said, it is fun. It's, it's a romp. Mm-hmm. Um, unlike the book, which we'll get yeah. to. So let's get <laughs> yeah. to your personal journey with the, the material.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot, but obviously the first time I heard about this was when the production came to Danny's studio. I was really jealous because Ryan Gosling and Chris Evans are heartthrobs, if I do say so myself.
0: What? Really? <laughs> I'm just clueless. Um, of course. Yeah. As a straight guy, I, <laughs> yeah. I just, I'm just like, what? <laughs> yeah.
1: um, and of course, we're big fans of the Russo brothers. I think they've done some great work in the past. So I, but, but at the same time, like I knew it was a spy thriller and this, that's just like not my thing. So then Danny found out that it was actually premiering at the Bay Theater in Pacific Palisade, which is where I grew up. Um, it's a new theater, but Netflix owns it. And so this is the first time that we went there. We wanted to check it out and also see the movie. And guys, like this is a total hidden gem. There's a bar at the Bay theater. There's a bar. They've got like,
0: it's brand new, brand
1: new. Yeah. This is this whole little area of Pacific Palisades was basically purchased by this guy that's running for mayor right now. He completely renovated it all. Got rid of the local businesses, <laughs> um, but Whoops. but it is but it is a beautiful theater. It's really fun, and we had a great night. Like we had a great date night seeing it. I think that there were only like three other couples at. The time in the theater yeah. that we're in opening there weekend. Um, yeah, opening weekend. Yeah, opening weekend. Netflix
0: is not advertising this theater,
1: right? No, and I feel conflicted about advertising it here on our podcast. Not that a lot of people listen, but it's like it's almost one of those little hidden gems that I want to like keep oh, to Oh, you want it?
0: You want to gatekeep? I, I want to gatekeep.
1: <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, gosh, that's the last thing I want to be called out for because I hate gatekeeping. But um, it's really cute and. I hope that it. I want enough people yes. to go so that it doesn't close, right? Because this is definitely something that we've now been able to take advantage of for multiple movies, even movies that aren't good. Like I saw Persuasion there, and that was a load of steaming dog shit. <laughs> um, but it was fun. It's it's fun to go see movies in like a small little theater. So anyway, um, we had a fun time with that. And then the other thing that I was just going to shout out was this little bookshop in calistoga outside of napa valley california where we got this book so we uh we were there for a family wedding and we happened to walk into copperfield's books again in calistoga and picked this book up because we like to
0: support support
1: little local bookshops um which again there was a local bookshop in this little area actually right next door to where the bay theater is and it is gone now because of the asshole that basically purchased all of Pacific Valley States. But I'm going to get off that topic because otherwise we'll never get to the book. So I just wanted to shout out Copperfields. Um, And then I read this on a plane to another family wedding because they've been nonstop (laughs) this year. (laughs) Yeah. And didn't like it. Actually hated it.
0: So when was the book published?
1: So yeah, I'll get into the context of the book. The book was published in 2009. It was written by Mark Greeney, who... I think also to sort of put this series, the Gray Man series, into context, he actually collaborated with Tom Clancy on the Jack Ryan series. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's kind of like I would say he's almost like an institution. He's part of the institution of this yeah. like pulpy spy
0: in genre. Leagues with uh, Lee Child, who's a big right. fan.
1: <laughs> so that's that's such a joke. So yeah, I was doing some research into this author, and if you go onto this author's page. You know, he's advertising the 12th Grey Man book that's coming out this tw- February 2023. And every single cover of the Grey Man books has this little seal that says, I love the Grey Man, period. Lee Child. Yeah. It's just so funny. So it's kind of like, speaking of gatekeeping, I feel like it's this like sort of white male like institution of like, this is what spy thrillers are Yeah, (laughs) and military, you know, thrillers and whatever and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So anyway, that's some background on Mark Greeny. Like I said, there are 12 uh, Gray Man novels. The 11th is called Sierra Six, which I think they used as inspiration for Ryan Gosling's character in the movie. Yes to give him a little bit more context that was probably like peppered throughout the series mm-hmm. which i think it probably the first book could have used a little more development
0: agreed <laughs> and the gray man I agreed 100% there's like
1: zero like like we don't even know what the gray man looks like mm-hmm. there's zero even physical development of any of the characters in this book which i think is like very straight other than of course the non-white characters which is <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. a
1: little bit silly so yeah so yeah <laughs> that's that's about it i can get into the reasons that i hated the book like throughout the analysis yeah but that's kind of like the background yeah
0: right it is surprising that this is such an accessible genre for a book that came out in 2009 it feels odd for the movie adaptation to come out much later in 2022 it just seems like a huge gap
1: and honestly Luckily for them, because I think if this had come out around two thousand nine, we would have a really problematic movie on our hands, to be honest. Yeah. We the can yeah, I mean get into
0: those, yeah. Yeah. Let's get into the analysis here before we get uh, carried away, shall we? Sure. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, let's do let's do a yeah, quick synopsis so everyone knows what and who we're talking about. Yeah.
0: Okay. So we know the genre spy assassin on the run from his own agency. That applies to both the book and the movie but we are pleased to discuss that there are plenty of differences here so this is going to be a juicy thrilling Mm -hmm. episode Mm -hmm. okay so the novel it follows court gentry the gray man who's on a mission across europe to rescue his handler sir donald fitzroy keep that in your mind sir donald and his family in normandy france from lloyd a member of a gigantic French corporation. Lloyd is American, but the corporation he works for is French. Uh, corporation called the Laurent Group. And Lloyd wants Gentry terminated in order to shepherd a billion-dollar deal for oil interests in Nigeria, where its president, in turn, wants Gentry dead for the assassination of his brother. So already a little convoluted. My
1: head is spinning. Okay, so
0: let's, let's break down the players here. You have Court Gentry, who works for Cheltenham Security, which is this security detail, but secretly they do hits. Mm -hmm. Um, And the leader of Cheltenham is Sir Donald Fitzroy, an Englishman. You also have the Laurent Group, which is the same thing as the Cheltenham Group. Their security detail that does hits around the country. And the Laurent Group is in cahoots with President Abu Bakr of Nigeria. Now, President Abu Bakr's brother was killed by court gentry. Mm-hmm. Okay? So now, President Abu Bakr is making a deal with the, the Laurent group. He says, I'll give you the oil interests in my country, which are very lucrative, as long as you kill the person who killed my brother. Mm-hmm. Okay?
1: I've, I'm getting like a Pepe Silva vibe. Right. <laughs> Pepe Silva. <laughs>
0: okay so so basically <laughs> yeah. there's a hit out on court gentry because court gentry killed this president's brother mm-hmm. and lloyd is the ambassador of the the wrong group who is hired by president abu Bakr, and you never see the president abu Bakr in the novel at all he's yeah. this you just but just by name the movie getting straight to the differences here yeah is extremely easier to follow and streamlined so in the movie court gentry is working for the sierra project which is an offshoot of the cia so he's working for an american like off books kind of right yeah. yeah an assassin More violent assassin yeah but works for the cia exactly yeah, yeah he's working for the sierra project and his handler is donald fitzroy who in the movie is an american played by billy bob thornton the great yeah, he's Billy fun. Bob Thornton yeah
1: he's fun he's
0: always great yeah but Billy Bob Thornton has since retired and now the new head of the CIA is this guy Danny Carmichael played by reggae Jean Page he's having a, a huge career after Bridgerton Bridgerton, right yeah. yeah
1: yeah I actually haven't seen him in anything else
0: right other than this yeah I hope he becomes the next James Bond he seems. Perfect yeah. for that. Now
1: he's got spy thriller experience. Yeah, so Ray
0: <laughs> John Page he wants to use the CIA for his own personal gain to do his own hits here and there and his own backdoor dealings. Mm-hmm. So he's eliminating everyone within the Sierra project because one of the people in the Sierra project, Sierra Four, has dirt on Carmichael.
1: Yeah. So
0: he's using everyone in the Sierra project to hunt themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And kill and solely. Which is smart because
1: they're the elite assassins. So like who else would be equipped enough to kill them? Well, themselves. Yeah. 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 So, So yeah.
0: Sierra six, which is Ryan Gosling's character, the gray man, he's sent to kill Sierra four. He doesn't know that this person is Sierra four but he ends up killing him and acquiring little flash drive data chip that has the dirt on Carmichael. So now Carmichael is after court gentry. Yeah. So, okay. So the book is that the, the Laurent group is after court gentry and the movie it's the CIA is after court gentry.
1: Yeah. So
0: that that's the the, corrupt
1: CIA. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That's, not that the CIA has ever not been corrupt in my opinion. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> <laughs> sorry we'll get out, we'll getting get out political. Of, we'll, um, i'll get out of the political pool right
0: but yeah so you can see that the book is very much speaking of political it's it's based around politics of you know oil the oil industry in nigeria and presidents and interdealings between countries over yeah. oil the movie is just kind of a very straightforward there's corruption in the cia one of the assassins has dirt on the head of the CIA. So that guy is hunting down him. So very much easier to follow, extremely streamlined. You don't have to do much digging. You know, is it a little surface level, a little cliched? Sure, but cliches done right. If it ain't broke, don't fix it.
1: Yeah, and, and injecting the cliches with stuff like, you know, like Lloyd, who again is played by Chris Evans. Like he's so, he's such an asshole. Yeah. Like, And he just, like, cannot be bothered with people. And I think, like, that approach to the character is so much more enjoyable to watch than people just, like, being so intense about their job that, like, all they can say is, like, give me more ammo. Or, like, yeah. like there's this one point, there's this line that I wrote down when we were watching the movie last night. Just after Chris Evans' Lloyd character figures out that he has to, like, kidnap Fitz and his granddaughter claire who we'll get to Mm -hmm. um and so he's like he figures out that he has to to like smoke out the gray man Mm -hmm. um he has to kidnap these two people and then he's sort of blackmailing Fitz by saying you know i'm gonna kidnap your granddaughter if you don't make this call and try to like lure Mm -hmm. the gray man back in and so he says something like You know, why don't you come to me and I won't have to chop your head off? And then he does this like reaction that's Mm -hmm. so fucking funny. Like he dangles that violence as like a funny thing that he doesn't want to do, but like he will if it comes to that. Mm -hmm. And like I just love the way that he approaches this character. It's just so because, you know, when it comes down to the nuts and bolts of this, like. We know for the most part that spy thrillers are all fiction. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. real life is not this crazy, like, train running through Prague and, Mm -hmm. you know, terrorists with massive guns, like, shooting buildings kind of thing. Like, that's not really real life. So the fact that they can poke fun at that is just fresh. I think it's a fresh take at, like, the spy thriller thing. And it's not like James Bond. Like, there's humor in James Bond, but it's still very inaccessible humor. Yeah, But this is, like oh, this asshole finds himself on the top of this assassin group. Mm -hmm. And again, at his core, he's a jerk. And so he treats everyone like they're stupid. And that's funny because he's actually the worst person in the movie.
0: Yeah. This segues nicely into another big difference. So Lloyd Hansen in the book is a much softer, gentler, less threatening, uh, physically threatening villain. Because in the novel, He's an American attorney who's ex-CIA, but he's an attorney. How
1: fucking uninteresting is that? Like, Uh, I I never understood, like, how he, he just has the power of the group behind it. Like, that's mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's so uninteresting.
0: (laughs) And so, yeah, he's an attorney for the Laurent group. He also knows Court from the CIA, (laughs) but Court doesn't remember Lloyd. And that's a big sticking point for Lloyd is Mm -hmm. that, court doesn't remember him at all and that leads to a lot of insecurities for lloyd and a big reason why lloyd really wants to kill him uh, even after the his uh contract falls through he's still just butthurt that Uh lloyd doesn't remember him Uh, that's not in the movie at all but both in the novel and film lloyd is a reckless sociopathic agent of chaos (laughs) uh but yeah in the book he's not a threat whereas in the movie he's very much the gray man's foil mm-hmm. the opposite and they have a big climactic fight
1: and i think like that that's what pushes the movie forward like lloyd is this constant present threat like even even at this one point where lloyd has put out a hit on like a 10 million dollar hit or something on the gray man because he's been mm-hmm. contracted to get the gray man so he puts out this hit and the gray man is actually captured by the, who he thought was kind of a safe house where he could get like a passport and stuff yeah. he's actually captured
0: by laslo
1: but right so this little kind of like this oh, cute guy which is actually really sad spoilers he dies yeah. and this this guy that captures him he makes this call to Lloyd's men. And and he's like, Oh, well, who's the closest who can go ahead and like pick him up or kill him. And his attache is kind of like, Oh, it's us. Like, he's always there. He's in the middle of the action. Whereas in the book, the guy that's contracted this, you know, outside company to kill the gray man is never in the book. You're right. And he, he, what's really upsetting too, is he's this like caricature of like third world corrupt dictators. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like that's playing on a lot of like stereotypes to the point where I think Mark Greene is like, assuming that all of the readers are going to make this jump of like, Oh shit. Like, This guy's a Nigerian president. He must be terrifying. You know, and he and he doesn't even spend any time describing what this guy will do. You know? Right. Like he'll probably kill Lloyd if he doesn't carry out this hit. But like who fucking cares? We don't like Lloyd. So like that I think is a huge failing of the novel. Like there's no propelling tension. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the movie, it's like we've seen Lloyd you know, rip people's fingernails off. We've seen him torture people and then just walk away and be like, that's just my job. I don't give yeah. a shit. He killed like, he...
0: Laszlo and in... yeah. Right. When White... he opened his door.
1: Yeah. Literally like Laszlo's like, where's my money? He, he's like holding the gun, basically like a purse. <laughs> yeah. And he just like, like flicks his wrist and shoots him like five times in the chest yeah. and walks away. Like that is the lethal weapon that we're dealing with that's the tension right it's just keyed up way past the book
0: and we have the added bonus of what you've already mentioned an actor playing against type so so chris Chris evans Evans, every listen (laughs) listen, everyone loves chris evans this he's captain america but he's but apparently
1: in love with lizzo (laughs)
0: <laughs> who isn't? I know. Um, I, I know. So, Honestly, yeah, though. Yeah. So he...
1: He's the greatest. Lit
0: the world on fire with Knives Out. Everyone loves Knives Out who, yeah. who has seen Knives Out. This is the second instance of him playing against type. And it's just, there's nothing better than than when that happens. It's so
1: enjoyable. Like, yeah. he's such a gaping asshole the, in this.
0: The writing, I think, is extremely smart and funny for his character yeah. just just one liner after one liner yeah and again added bonus you're like that's that's captain america saying that yeah. line. my my favorite line is when uh after he has that run in with court gentry at laszlo's crib in mm-hmm. prague anna de character danny miranda just called miranda throughout the film she tranquilizes lloyd in the butt mm-hmm. and then they escape and so later on when Lloyd is back at the Chateau in France where he's uh, holding Fitzroy and uh, his niece hostage.
1: Oh, is it his niece? I said granddaughter.
0: Right, that's another change oh, okay, from the... Okay, it's, okay. I, I didn't realize that until I was researching it today. That, But oh, anyways, sure. um, might as well be his granddaughter, right? Yeah. He, who cares? Yeah, who, <laughs> um, yeah, really, who cares? But he goes, watch out, uh, Six has helped. And Suzanne Brewer, played by Jessica Henwick, says, like, how do you know that? And Lloyd goes, well, I didn't tranquilize myself on the ass. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's just like little stuff like I, that. I was
1: going to say another moment that I think just sets up his asshole characteristics perfectly is when he first confronts Fitz and he's just like sitting outside of a Fitz's friend's funeral. yeah. And he's like, like, hey, buddy, basically. And then he takes out his lollipop that he's sucking and he just fucking throws it off camera. Yeah, like he's like on top of everything else. He's a litter bug. Yeah, (laughs) it's just, it's just those things that it's like he literally looks for ways to be a piece of shit. (laughs) Yeah. So a
0: huge improvement in his character in every single way. He's an active member of the plot. Yeah. And it's very important that he's in the action because the fact that Lloyd is not in the action in the book kind of makes all of the action scenes blend together because it's just nameless, yeah. faceless goons.
1: So, yes, to your point. So I was going to say to further our discussion about the sort of stereotyping of the Nigerian president, there's very little characterization around the main characters, which is odd and and kind of makes all of them blend together anyway, like Fitz, the gray man lloyd all these people are kurt just kind Riegel. of i don't fucking is that the guy that like helps lloyd like the main right guy? so in yeah the,
0: in the book there is the vp of operations of the laurent group is this character named kurt regal okay. a german yeah, yeah I fucking operative. i forgot about this and guy, he yeah. he is just completely removed from the Movie probably because they added a few characters. They added Suzanne Brewer. They added a couple other people for Lloyd's. I would call his
1: character fluff excised from the movie. Yeah. Um. But yeah. So these, this just and and the, the funny thing too is that again, I think what Mark Greeny is leaning on as a writer is you know I. I'm too lazy almost to describe all of these main characters, but we're obviously led to believe that they're white because the non-white characters are then described as just like the terrorists, the Iraqis, the Bosnians, the Libyans, Libyans, the Israelis. And I, and I'm not kidding. Like look at the book flip to any random page. And it's literally like the non-white ethnic group <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. and so I think that in that way, like this, like again, to your point, I think that completely takes the tension away, because we don't have any history with any of these people. He's just assuming like, oh, you know, these non white groups, they are terrorists. And so they are bad, and they mm-hmm. will hurt non white groups without any motive, except for money. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, better watch out. So like, that not only is like harmful stereotyping, but it also makes for like really low stakes because we don't have any we don't have any evidence that these people are like cutthroat killers. And not only that, but when the gray man takes out these large groups who end up, you know, uh, sort of confronting him at different areas around the world, they're so expendable that like what are we just supposed to think that the gray man is in danger? <laughs> like Mm -hmm. It it almost takes away from like the victory that Court has when he overcomes a group of five, a group of 12, because it's like, well, yeah, it could be a group of five or 12 who fucking cares like he's going to win. So, you know, where's the skill? Where's the excitement in Mm -hmm.
0: that? Yeah. The point of the gray man is that he's this unstoppable agent. But the book definitely stretches uh, credulity a little bit because there's just more instances of Court running into these goons across mm-hmm. the world. And I think the movie being a movie, obviously there's sequences cut out, right. um, but it's slightly more believable. I mean, court running on top of a train as it's crashing into a building and him jumping onto a car and being fine. That's a little bit of a stretch, yeah. obviously.
1: Uh, hey, why don't we flag this as one of the sequences that was filmed at your studio though?
0: Yes. Yeah. So that scene in Prague when he's fighting team alpha bravo and delta yeah Uh, you know
1: which again movie is smart they don't make it ethnic
0: Uh (laughs) right alpha bravo delta yeah yeah. when he's uh running on top of the train it's not that there's no semblance to reality like it's not like a fast and furious film where they're literally superheroes (laughs) that's
1: bottom of the barrel right yeah Yeah. (laughs) fast and furious um
0: but it is it is fun but it's a little wacky but that was shot at the studio so
1: so something i was going to say about that whole thing so like I do think, and this this very much encompasses the 007 quandary, I think, that we find ourselves with this kind of genre. Like, you can only have so much invincibility yes. before it becomes, like, stupid and boring, and it's like, well, you know, again, like, where is the tension? Like, this guy is going to get out scot-free. This, I think, again, is where the movie was smart, and they said, let's add some help so that mm-hmm. there isn't, this insane overcoming of obstacles every five minutes yeah. without a little bit of help. And Ana de Armas is so well utilized in this movie. I think that a huge letdown of the last 007 mm-hmm. was that she was billed, or at least advertised as a larger part of the plot yeah. where she just comes in for one scene and then it's She's like it's a cameo. Deuces, yeah. Really is a cameo. And speaking of Knives Out, she can obviously oh, that's right. very obviously carry a wonderfully dynamic character. Yeah. And I think that as much as she I mean, I don't I'm not gonna like make a claim that her character is as interesting and fun as it is in Knives Out. Oh, yeah, yeah. But (laughs) but at least she is a plot point and she carries the plot forward by doing things and figuring things out by herself. Yes. Um she's not just leaning on court to save her. She's not leaning on him to be a romantic interest which and I think is a huge deal yeah. and and like a strength of the movie to not lean on that
0: and to your point after the prog sequence she's like are you doing okay uh, to six mm-hmm. that is and then six says yeah. my ego is a little bruised I'd like to save you at one point mm-hmm. so it's like a subversion of that trope where six is kind of the damsel in distress for
1: sure <laughs> so. and like and this is the thing too with like with invincible characters I think there was a lot of discussion when 007 came out. And if you go back to the original books as sexist and racist, and you know, there's a lot of bad stuff in there. But the kernel of the story that I find very compelling is that 007, as much as the movies would like you to think he's invincible, he's actually a very deeply emotional and conflicted spy. Mm-hmm. And something that I actually really liked about, the last No Time to Die movie was like, again, huge massive spoilers. So skip ahead if you don't want to find this out. But 007 dies. And I think the way that you open a character up who's supposed to be invincible is through this like, emotional arc. Because if they're physically invincible, and emotionally invincible, I don't care about the character. Mm -hmm. But if you take those ideas of like, you know, if you bring them down to earth, like I, every time I shoot my gun, I could be killing someone, you know, I have the, the fate of the world on my shoulders. If you give those like emotional, not weaknesses, but like nuances to that sort of character who has to deal with these things in their, you know, daily job, daily lives, that is a more interesting character for me. So I think that the way that court is given that like emotional, openness and and like nuance is through claire yes and through his relationship with like needing help right like that gives you a more dynamic quote-unquote invincible spy character so well done well done with the movie for giving him these things to be a character that has more depth
0: yes let's put a pin in claire i want to talk about that right after this point that i'm about to make go for it Got that pin in there? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Because
1: I really want to talk about her. I
0: love Claire. So this is a big change. So, okay. Don't let me forget. We need to talk about Claire. But (laughs) if I may, I'd like to put forward one compliment for the book. Will you allow it?
1: Tentatively. (laughs) Speak your mind and then I'll let you know.
0: So something that I did enjoy about the book is that... Well, for one thing, I think action scenes in books are really hard to make interesting because Mm -hmm. it's hard to know the choreography of Mm -hmm. it's like it's really tough to not get lost in an action scene in a book because Mm -hmm. you're like wait a second since you don't have that visual element right all you have is your mind, right? To go That's off where a of...
1: graphic novel exceeds. Exactly. Right? Because we know, like, pow. Yeah. Okay, like, boom. <laughs> and you know
0: where, like, a missile is coming from. Right. Like, what direction. Like, who. Where ha- a
1: window is so that they can escape. Exactly.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. E- exactly. So I think Mark Greeny does action very well, where I always know where everything is. I know the choreography. I know how court gets from point A to point B. I think that's well done. Another thread of the book is that six is slowly retaining injuries that get progressively more severe, mm. meaning that he's slowly approaching death throughout the whole novel to the point where by the climactic battle, he is literally bleeding out mm-hmm. and knocking on heaven's door. Mm-hmm. That is something that the movie doesn't lean into as much. Mm. Ryan Gosling seems a little bit more invincible. Not fully invincible because he does have help, mm-hmm. like you just mentioned. But we don't get that thread of him like checking in on his own health yeah. that there is in the book. And my favorite scene in the book that's not in the movie is that while he's on his way to the chateau in Normandy, he is accompanied by this uh, veterinarian mm. nurse yeah Uh, justine who is like while court is driving she's performing a suture procedure where she's like cauterizing his wounds and also giving him stitches that's like hardcore that's well done and
1: then in in fact at the end of that scene it's so painful that he passes out and they crash the car (laughs) right so i think
0: that's an element of the book that the movie doesn't really delve into the fact that the Laurent group is trying to wear the gray man down because they know that he probably can't be killed in one or two tries Mm -hmm. you need to slowly push him out Mm -hmm. slowly kill him and I think the fact that he's like progressively dying throughout the novel is is a fun thing that maybe they could have had six be more injured I don't know like I feel like
1: well, he gets off the train, <laughs> and he has a scratch on his forehead. Like, yeah, I, th- I for think sure, yeah. I think
0: he could have been injured more in the movie. I yeah. guess is my biggest point.
1: For sure, yeah, yeah, that's fine. That's fair. I
0: think that's as much praise as I can give the book. Sure. I mean, I didn't hate I didn't hate the book like you did. I think it's a little uh, repetitive and misguided and problematic, which we can get to later. But if you have nothing else in that point, do you want to get to Claire?
1: So. There is a point, and now I do have to admit that I'm working literally off book. I forgot the book at home, <laughs> and we're not recording from
0: Unprofessional home. Unprofessional bullshit.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to come up because we're going to th- talk about. It, I think you should leave soon. Um, but so there is a point where I believe Court is in like Croatia. It might be Prague, somewhere in Eastern Europe, and he escapes some. Again, non white ethnic group. Mm. And he's like naked. I think all he has is his underwear. Uh And he crashes through a window. And it's literally described that he has nothing on because Uh he gets like cut. He like crashes through a window and ends up like having to walk through glass. Mm -hmm. And then he sort of breaks into an older woman's apartment.
0: Mm hmm.
1: And do you remember he gets yeah. clothes from her? Right. What does he suddenly have to thank her for giving him the clothing?
0: Oh my God, you're right. He has. He has money. a backpack. He has money.
1: He has a back. He has his backpack that has money in it.
0: Oh, okay. Well, tou- <laughs> touche, fair point. You just backhanded me right here in front of all of our listeners. <laughs> However, for the most part, I think. The spatial awareness and, yes. and choreography is well right.
1: done. Right. I agree. I think it, it is really hard to write action sequences. Um, but that was a real snag for me. Good catch. Like he, good catch. Mark Greene, at least, or an editor, because this honestly, I think the burden is on the editor to catch stuff like this. But he at least could have said something like the weight of the backpack didn't help how far the glass went into his foot or something like there should have been a mention of the backpack mm-hmm. just so that at least there wasn't like this whole
0: so um a naked man with a backpack
1: so a naked man with a backpack <laughs> <laughs> that's all i'm asking for that's yeah. all i'm asking for sure um, you'd have
0: liked that in the movie wouldn't you you mm-hmm. hound dog all right <laughs> yeah. so claire this um, is a, i don't
1: even think i don't do we even get a shirtless shot of yep, lloyd we
0: get oh, of lloyd yeah no.
1: i want mm, he wears
0: a pretty tight polo. But... Chris
1: Evans over Ryan Gosling, in my opinion. But we don't have to get into that. Although, <laughs> yeah. unless you want to throw your, we ha- can... your vote down. <laughs> I'm more
0: of a Billy Bob Thornton fan. No. Um, so, anyways. Um, Claire. Julia Butters. Julia Butters, who <laughs> everyone knows from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the little girl in that movie who talks to Leo's character.
1: Oh, <laughs> I was going to say... Everyone should know her from her well-known part in. I think you should leave Tim Robinson's comedy show, like sketch show, (laughs) specifically Tammy Craps, (laughs) the tall Tammy Craps. (laughs) Yeah, Um, she's great in that, Uh, but she's also great in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood.
0: Yeah, Um, much younger in that.
1: And she is actually only thirteen.
0: And she was what eleven when this was filmed. Yeah. Young, emerging actress. Very talented. Super so talented, let's, yeah. let's delve into the differences between her role in the movie and Again, in the book.
1: The movie is so smart with this character. So in the book, Fitz's whole sort of extended family is kidnapped. So it's his son, his son's wife, and their two twin children.
0: Claire and Kate.
1: Claire and Kate. So... I'm going to make another argument. You know how, like I've said on the podcast, that I feel like every novel could be made into a short story Mm -hmm. with good editing. Any novel can be, can you have a short story? Unless there is a key plot point with a sibling or especially like a twin, Mm -hmm. cut that out. Mm -hmm. It's just an extraneous character. I don't know why that choice was made to have these two kids. And additionally... The parents don't really add anything in right. the book. There's no... Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not even really, like, an emotional... I mean, unfortunately, Fitz's son is actually shot and killed during the hostage sort of thing. Yeah. And I didn't care. There's no emotional connection to those people. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're just there for a plot point. Right. And I think the way that the movie opened Court's character up is by sending us back by a couple years and setting up the whole thing that, like, Claire also doesn't have family outside of Fitz. Both of her parents have died, and she's an only child. Mm -hmm. So she is given six as a sort of bodyguard for a while. Mm -hmm. So they create this close bond because none of them have family. Yes. And that bond is ultimately what leads Court to say, you know, like, he's not just going to disappear because there's a hit on him. He first has to save Fitz, but also more importantly, Claire. Claire, yes, because um, she's just this innocent child, and I love. I'm sorry, I know I'm going on a little bit, but I love that she is smart, but she's also very much affected by the violence that her young life yeah. has already come into contact with, and that Court is like aware of that, and he takes care. He he takes care to protect her.
0: Right. The big new thing for films these days is to write the smart, precocious kid who always has these one-liners and is fine amidst action and violence. But no, right. she's like a real kid. She does have one-liners. Like, it's just another Thursday, Yeah. right? But she also is not just stone-faced amidst all this murder. Like, she, yeah. she's going to have PTSD for the rest of her life. I mean, she watched her grandpa... Die. Blow up. Yeah. Blow up. <laughs> I mean yeah. <laughs> yeah, so not just
1: die, but like Right, yeah. Yeah.
0: So yeah, she feels like a real character is is just precocious enough where it's not annoying. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, it's a tightrope here where yeah. she she's funny but not annoying, but also like a little sarcastic, but not too mm-hmm. much. Again, great writing by joe russo adapted the script but also was co-written by the russo brothers frequent collaborators christopher marcus and stephan mcfeely they wrote infinity war and endgame as well as uh, captain america civil war which we covered on the podcast last season mm-hmm. some uh,
1: of the top tier marvel movies yeah yeah some
0: some of the best they wrote They're the russo brothers guys
1: like three of the five top tier Marvel movies
0: so they've got a good thing going uh, with these with these screenwriters and yeah it it feels real the book I mean they attempt to do a slight connection between Court and uh specifically Claire in in the book I I know there's Claire and Kate but but he connects more so to Claire but it's kind of you know he does security detail for them once but there's no He doesn't like stop them from any danger, and the connection is really weak, which I thought was an interesting choice. I mean, just (laughs) from a screenwriting perspective, it's like why wouldn't you want to make Court and Claire like father daughter? You right?
1: Well, to your point, exactly. Like, what is motivating Court to go save Fitz's entire family? Right. Other than the fact that like Fitz is his handler, which even that is a tenuous at best yeah
0: it's like relationship he, in the book he i guess it was weird because we had watched the movie first so we had known about how deep and meaningful
1: that's their true. connection
0: was so to read it in the book and for it to be like kind of like a he like only passingly cares for claire and i guess kate it just felt weird like why wouldn't mark greenie take the opportunity to to develop that
1: well and, and another thing I could be completely wrong about this. I could be misremembering, but I think that Claire and Kate are also like six or seven. I, so seven or
0: eight, yeah. there's
1: just like not the emotional development too that I think could have been put into their, mm-hmm. their characters. And um, the
0: stakes are even heightened because they give Claire a heart so condition.
1: I was going to move into this discussion too. Yeah, yeah, take it away.
0: Well, that's it. I mean, in the flashback the two years earlier flashback, Court essentially saves Claire's life by she has an episode with her pacemakers, but then that very wisely comes back into play. That's how Court tracks down.
1: Exactly, and this is exactly what, yes, yes. It becomes a plot point that simplifies how he tracks her down. Right. He doesn't have to go through this whole investigation, which honestly could have added like half an hour to the movie, which would have been a misstep.
0: And it's very convoluted in the book because in the book, what happens is that Fitzroy gets Claire to steal a bodyguard's phone. And then Fitzroy calls Six secretly and talks to him. But it's kind of like, why wouldn't they be monitoring them at all times? Like, how, It's just very <laughs> contrived to have yeah. like them steal a cell phone and then to have them discover it later and then kill the bodyguard and the bodyguard's like wait a second i didn't know that my phone was stolen so so that's how court finds out about the chateau in the book to this like very extended sequence of secret phone calls between him and fitzroy in the movie it's just simple he tracks the pacemaker that he knew was the new pacemaker after this episode he goes to the hospital where uh, the pacemaker was initially, the new one was put in and he, you know, puts his code in because he, he finds out the code through Laszlo uh, mm-hmm. earlier on in the film. So that's how it gets, it's very, again, streamlined, simplified.
1: Yeah. And it also shows that Gentry is very emotionally mature. Like he was connected to Claire Enough to the point that he like would remember that she had a pacemaker. like he not only saved her life by defending her from an intruder at one point, which is like a scene. great use of a needle drop too, by the way, with the use of Silverbird by Mark Lindsay. Mm-hmm. Um, like he I think again, that's kind of like a way that he's like shielding mm-hmm. little Claire right of the violence, yeah. Um, What's going on around her? I just, I, like, it's, it's a really sweet way of, like, deepening their relationship. And they don't, I think that you made this point in a couple episodes of, like, season seven or series seven. But at one point, I think you said that, like, you have to tell the audience, like, three separate times mm-hmm. that something's going on for them to kind of pick up on it or for us to pick up on it. And not only are the breadcrumbs sort of left for you to pick up that the gray man and claire don't have any family other than themselves but but it's also like stated explicitly which Mm -hmm. i think is really nice because at the very end she's like you know who else do we have (laughs) yeah um and that and that's not unearned Mm -hmm. that line is like really not out of nowhere it's like very very much kind of like an emotional apex
0: right yeah some of the best scenes are with claire another one of my favorite scenes though uh, has to deal with court and miranda getting claire's pacemaker number in the hospital mm. and being interrupted by avic mm. played by the incredibly famous in india uh bollywood right yeah uh, tollywood yeah
1: Tol- oh tollywood yeah television? Uh, television bollywood or
0: no so i'll get into this oh yeah right after me, this.
1: Cause i actually don't know so
0: yeah. yeah the tamil actor who goes by Dhanush, just one name mm. who is one of the most famous people in India mm-hmm. right now. He's a singer, actor, he's won a bunch of awards. He's won four of what's the Indian equivalent of Oscars. Mm-hmm. Just casting him opens up the whole market of India, which is this crazy untapped market that American mm-hmm. films are not utilizing. Mm. So the population of America is 329.5 million. The population of India is 1.38 billion.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> so more than four times America's population. And in India, there are two movie industries going on. There's Tollywood and Bollywood. The population of India watches both. It's not like they're like separated down the middle. Mm-hmm. Tollywood refers to productions in India of telugu movies uh the language whereas bollywood refers to the production of hindi movies
1: interesting i had no idea
0: right and again i want to reiterate that these are two separate industries right there's like hollywood tollywood bollywood but the people of india they watch both movies from bollywood and tollywood as well as hollywood of course but there's this huge market out there Again, more than four times America's population. That I mean, I've only seen a few Bollywood movies in my life, and I, I just saw RRR the other week, which is uh, premiered on Netflix. And thank God Netflix is showing this movie because it wouldn't have any other access to it. It's this crazy movie. Again, there it's a different kind of energy and format than Hollywood movies. But yeah, so Dhanush, his character, is slightly inspired by. The assassin character of Kim in the novel. Mm-hmm. In the novel, yeah, Kim is this South Korean assassin who faces off against court gentry in an alleyway in France, and delivers quite the blow to gentry with a knife uh, in his abdomen.
1: Oh, oh, yeah. In the book, it's a, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That's, that's so, a pretty gnarly. So it's,
1: he like he like guts him. Right. So yeah, that like, that's
0: the injury in the book where court later on has to get that procedure in the car as he's driving to the chateau
1: song park kim
0: song Park. yeah
1: i just looked up the full name thank you yeah
0: the movie i mean i don't think it's casting someone tamil just for the sake of doing it but i mean there is that added element of you know they opened up this movie to this market that's been underutilized for decades it's also great to see representation in there. His character is not in the movie a lot, and I wouldn't say he's, like, developed outside of just being an assassin who who has a problem with killing kids. Yeah. But... But his scene, his fight scene with Six and Miranda in the hospital is pretty cool.
1: It's gnarly. Um, and he, in the movie, he actually stabs Six with a pair of scissors, which is almost like Oh, it's through closer, the hand. Like, through, oh, and through the, oh my God. Yeah. Like, it's I forgot so about fu- that. He, he like basically appears out of nowhere and just like stabs him through the hand. Is fucking, Ew. oh, and that, that's a great reaction too, where Cord is like,
0: fuck like yeah. that,
1: you know, but anyway, so to your point. Because I had no idea about who this actor was until last night when he explained it to me a little bit more. He, but
0: he is like more famous than Brad Pitt uh, in India. Yeah. Like he is. Yeah. Well, like, there's
1: three times more people to right. fawn over this person. So this is something that I really, I like that you brought this up because something that, so I've been reading this book for over a year. This is a, this is an outside book, but it's really dense and I've been learning a lot. So I'm kind of like, I'm taking it slow. But there's a book called The End of Victory Culture by Thomas Engelhart. He was written in like the 90s. But it is, I think it's like a dissertation. I don't, I don't know exactly why he wrote this book. But like I said, it's extremely dense. And it's all about how America, American culture has been built on this idea of us and them. And how expendable, starting with the indigenous peoples of North America have become specifically to enhance the passion and the fervor behind, like, Manifest Destiny. So by creating this very simple line of like, you know, white people and colored people, or, you know, non-religious and religious, or even Catholic to Protestant, that kind of thing, like that, those very harsh lines, make it very easy to group people and target people and, and like up to the point where like you're killing people and you're not supposed to like care because it's Mm -hmm. like the hero, right? Like, like John Wayne movies very much like, you know, cowboy and Indian kind of dynamics. Mm -hmm. So something that I really appreciate that they did with that assassin in particular is that as much as he's a little bit underdeveloped, Mm -hmm. because he is just kind of out for the bounty, like that's the only reason he's there hunting court. They also put him on the level of court because he defeats him, Mm -hmm. like almost mortally injures him. Right. And gets away with the information chip, Mm -hmm. gets all the way to Lloyd. So he does something that no other assassin has been able to do. Mm -hmm. He delivers on this promise. And then importantly, he doesn't die. Yeah. And that is, like, he walks away because he's smart enough to realize that there are other jobs. And I think that that decision, again, it, it, it gives you evidence that he is on the same level as court. And as much as all of the other assassins, you know, to be fair, like, they all die. <laughs> They're yeah. very expendable. It's very much still kind of like court versus the others. I think that they do something smart in the movie where like a lot of times those assassins like faces are covered or they're kind of blatantly just kind of like a handful of people who like, yes, are expendable, but like they never were put on the level of court. Yeah. I think that difference between like all of them dying, which again, like is complicated. I know that that's kind of a thing of this genre. Yeah. Versus this other guy that gets away and he's just like, it's not worth it. You know, I was looking for a paycheck. It's not going to come through. I'm walking away. Mm-hmm. I think that that shows that you know they're on the same level, and I think yeah. that's really important. That's a really important statement that the book does not care to make clearly. Well,
0: the book that spend, the movie does, yeah, the book spends so much time setting up the assassin Kim, and yes, granted, yeah. he does deliver a near fatal blow, which is the first time that Court has experienced. Something like that in the entire book. And it is a big momentous moment. <laughs> momentous mm-hmm. moment. Right. But he also does immediately die after that. Yeah. So I, to your point. It-
1: and in contrast, let's think about what happens with Lloyd. Because Lloyd very much so is put on the same level as court almost the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Again, regardless of what the book does. But Lloyd dies. So I think like that, that isn't that itself, I think, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I think that in itself is a statement of how there are some people who are finally coming around to the idea that like, not everyone in these movies has to be expendable. And there are people where, again, we've already stated that he could have been a little bit more developed. Mm -hmm. He, he's, he isn't the main character, a person of color is not the main character in this movie, which could have been. Right, a different casting could have been, but he doesn't die, and I think that in itself is a statement. So, whoever made that call, I think we're moving in the right direction with stuff like. Still room to grow. Yep. (laughs) But (laughs) moving in the right direction. So,
0: but you know who does die in the movie? Who? Fitzroy Donald Fitzroy. So this is (laughs) douchebag. So this is something that's funny about the movie. So there's not one, but two instances of a former mentor saying, go, yeah. and then blowing themselves up to yeah. save Court. Yeah. That, that is a huge trope of action movies in general. Yes. Just like the older person who, as they're escaping, they close the door behind them.
1: Well, and oh, his, his first handler does that. He escapes out. Yeah, right. <laughs> through a door right so
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah um and dune yes yeah the yes. dune does that as well but i mean it's pretty sick in dune <laughs> sorry
1: I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna put you on a different track because yeah. you're gonna go down uh, a dune hole that we don't need to go right down.
0: so um in the film his first handler that works with fitzroy is played by um alfrey woodard the great alfrey woodard and her name is margaret cahill in the book it's a man, Maurice. I don't believe Maurice is given a last name.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's just another like generic stand-in for yeah. a handler. Who and, cares? and the same,
0: <laughs> it, it's the same situation where the old handler is dying, and it's like, look, I don't have, I have like a month left. I'm, my life is going to be worth something I if think, I save you. Yeah. So that happens once, and it's it's a good scene. But then for it to happen 20 minutes later. I got to admit, it's a little funny for that to happen twice in one movie where they go, go, give me a grenade. Um, So our boy Fitzroy dies. Poor Claire uh, has no one left, but it also deepens the connection she has with six. And I have to give
1: her a shout out for that performance because you really do feel that she's like being ripped apart. Good good performance. uh,
0: In the book, our boy Fitzroy survives and drives out with the twins.
1: Again, where are the stakes? to the book
0: Mm -hmm. right yeah so they survive in the book lloyd is about to shoot six and then he gets shot by kurt regal but in the movie six is about to strangle lloyd to death and then suzanne shoots him but yeah she's just another member of the cia who went to harvard with both lloyd and carmichael that's why carmichael and lloyd have such a close relationship because they went to college together and suzanne is familiar with them because again she knew them from college as well they name drop harvard a few times which is funny uh, it's it's a little that funny is funny actually um, yeah that he just, just covered... like i went to harvard uh and yeah we just I don't
1: covered uh know. social networks. yep
0: yeah. um and then so the endings diverge pretty widely so in the movie, Suzanne decides to pin everything on Lloyd. So, everything the CIA did on Lloyd. Like, Lloyd stole CIA assets and did this whole operation himself without Carmichael. Out of kind
1: of like a personal revenge kind of thing. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, they pin everything on Lloyd, but then they give Carmichael the drive, meaning that the CIA will also keep claire safe
1: keep your secrets then (laughs) yeah
0: keep claire safe but it's really not safe she's being like held hostage again by them they'll continue to watch over claire as long as six does hits for them but the very final scene of the movie six escapes custody from the cia kills everyone in the compound that is holding claire and claire and six run away off to the sunset to safety Now, in the book, the Laurent group swoops in as Court is dying on the grounds of the chateau. So they save him in exchange for him working for them. So the whole book, he's being hunted by them and in kind of this poetic, ironic justice. Now he works for them at the end of the book because they saved his life. And there's a deal that they're not going to harm the Fitzroys after that, as long as he works for them. So. Both endings, a little convoluted. It's more so of a deus ex machina in the book. When, like, the Laurent, like, he literally flies in to save him, like like an actual god, like a deus ex machina. But I think in the book it is much more impactful because, again, of that deep relationship with him and Claire, he saves her from this raw deal.
1: So I'm thinking, like, I think the... it's, it's a little bit of a deus Ex machina in the movie, I agree, but I think that they've done a good enough job to develop Suzanne's mora- moral concern yes. over how far Lloyd is going, and she even has, like, she has so many lines to Lloyd, specifically about, like, you're you're going way too far, like, I'm not comfortable with this, you just killed... Mm-hmm. The, the other mentor who you, you mentioned, who what was her name?
0: Margaret Cahill.
1: Margaret Cahill. I think that they do enough to sort of like develop her angst and anger toward Lloyd. Mm-hmm. That shooting him also makes sense just out of like a I'm fed up <laughs> kind mm-hmm. of way. But yeah, no, yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't mean to like interrupt what you were saying. No, nope, so,
0: that's yeah. all I had to say. Th- um, those are the differences. Pretty big divergences between the book and the movie. I, I think they take elements from the book and shore it up in the movie to create more, uh, they like combine action sequences in the book court is chained to a police stations bench in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And that's when that, and so that's the scene where all the groups converge in Switzerland and he's trying to avoid being shot while being chained to a bench the movie combines that concept and then puts the rest of the sequence of him running on the train in Prague. Yeah. So it's like two in one. I I, I like that a lot. We should just talk about the technical aspects now too. We should. The movie looks pretty darn good. I think too many instances of CGI smoke. There's always like smoke going on. That being said, very slick action sequences. I love the use of drones
1: yes. throughout this. Yes, some um, of those some of those drone shots actually made me feel like, woo, like where am I? Yeah. You know, oh, they were so well done. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The cinematography is done by Stephen F. Winden, who has it's funny, we criticized the Fast and Furious movies. He shot basically all those movies. Shit. But he, <laughs> he has a reputation as don't add us. <laughs> right he has a reputation as known as being one of the nicest people in hollywood that was on his imdb page well,
1: that's nice yeah. i think you're the nicest person in Aww, hollywood
0: thank you so <laughs> i think the movie looks good i love the use of drones that was a big criticism i was reading in other reviews people didn't like that i'm like what you don't like cool angles like compare
1: I think this th- is fresh i think they have like i'm not I just i sounded like such a fucking californian right here, <laughs> it's but fresh it's hella I, fresh i to me, I think that like the the way that he tipped the drones was really a fresh yeah. way of like of using
0: them. So now, I... drones are in now an instance where it, drones were used too much was in the movie Ambulance, the Michael Bay movie Ambulance oh, that, that came out this year. You
1: watched that?
0: I I thought it... that
1: you weren't going to watch that.
0: I made it 32 minutes and I shut it off. I couldn't do it.
1: There you go. (laughs) In
0: 32 minutes, it's like it nonstop drone shots. And that's an instance where it is way too much. I simply couldn't handle the Michael Bay of it all. This is like very tastefully done. Again, don't overdo it.
1: Yeah, there are like a couple sequences that are really like you notice like, oh, this is a drone, but it's cool. It's cool. You don't go like, oh, this is overused. Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah. I know you wanted to talk about the score. I
1: do want to talk about the score. I just pulled up Henry Jackman's Wikipedia page, which shows you how much I do research before the podcast. Mm -hmm. But no, I am. So I pulled up his page and he's actually he's composed a lot. And he's also composed along with Hans Zimmer, who I know is one of our. Favorites, Mm -hmm. Um, not only for Dune. Excuse me for bringing up Dune (laughs) for the second time during this unrelated podcast episode. Um, But he's also Hans Zimmer also composed for Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. Mm -hmm. Um, So obviously he's well known. But anyway, we're talking about Henry Jackman. He also composed for um, looks like X Men First Class. I don't know Mm -hmm. if that's a good movie, but um, Wreck It Ralph that was pretty popular. Um,
0: he did the music for Cherry,
1: which oh oh, which we have on our list.
0: Yeah, we're gonna so cover that. This is yeah. another instance of a Russo brothers movie that he, came yes. that came yeah. out post Avengers that the American public has denounced. That I somehow have an extremely hot take that I, I liked Cherry a lot. If you go on Rotten Tomatoes, Cherry has like a forty two percent perplexed by it. I yeah. love Cherry. Yeah. I love the score for it. And I love this movie. I love this. The score for this movie is so... It it's, it's perfect. It is
1: rockin'. Because it's
0: pulse-pounding. Oh, yeah. It's, like, intense and moody. But it has a little bit of old-school horns in there. And it
1: sticks out. Yeah. Oh, and, honestly... Okay. here Here's one of those things that I feel like is completely... Maybe just a crazy... Like, Laura's crazy kind of moment. But we love horns in the... Finish my thought.
0: If Bill Street could talk. Oh, well, uh, of course. Okay.
1: Okay. Aside from that movie, because, yes, obviously. Um, No, James Bond.
0: That goes back to like
1: the John Barry score Mm, of like Dr. No and Goldfinger. I I don't know if those were inspirations for this score. Like, maybe that's a stretch, but I think like horns in a good spy thriller movie very much goes back to those like Bond roots. Mm-hmm. So I appreciated that. I think like purely like just watch the title sequence. Yeah. It's, it's really fun. Yeah. Um, I was going to say he also composed for Kingsman and big hero six, also captain America winter soldier, which I don't think that we touched on during our episode. Did we?
0: Um, I don't know that we I touched on this score, <laughs> but it's kind of fun.
1: So yeah, obviously he collaborates a lot with the Russo brothers yeah. Great choice for this movie.
0: Yeah, especially in the opening titles, like the... Yeah. And uh, it works great in the opening scene at the nightclub, which was also shot at my studio. Not the actual fighting, but all the crowds that were in that scene. Uh, they came in, so that was shot during the thick of the pandemic when you couldn't shoot with crowds. So what Netflix did was there's this little 360-degree led volume rig that had motion capture cameras and so people came in individually were shot individually and then digitally placed in the scene so it looks like a big crowd in the scene they shot with like 20 people scattered throughout the room and they digitally put in these performances that were shot in our stage in the scene like all the extras that were dancing they weren't really there pretty that cool was shot. so yeah.
1: i challenge you to go back and try to figure out yeah yeah, cuz cuz I didn't notice. I actually didn't know that that was one of the scenes yeah. when we watched it and I liked it. and that's really similar to what they did with Don't Look Up too. Yes, they exactly. filmed a crowd scene with individual people in your volume capture mm-hmm. yeah. rig. Yeah, so.
0: so yeah, I want to shout out Brian Grill, the Oscar nominated VFX artist. He was in charge. <laughs>
1: Oscar nominated?
0: Right. He was in charge of the whole operation, the whole VFX for this uh film and i should mention just last year he was nominated for free guy which i was uh, fun... dune? <laughs> not, not <really. laughs> he lost yeah. to dune mm-hmm. um but it was like an honor to watch him work on this film mm-hmm. and to see the seamless effects uh in the nightclub scene and of ryan gosling running on top of the train in mm-hmm. prague i mean what a privilege and a story i'd brian i hope you're listening to this well, uh you're yeah. I'm a big fan of yours, and uh, you did a great job on this movie. So, uh, hire me. The... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, marry me. Um, yeah. Um, well, yeah. That's that's have, about it. Yeah. I we have, gotta. I know we have to wrap this. We up. gotta I have get two, going. I have
1: two closing thoughts. All right. Go um, ahead. I I poked a plot hole in the book with the backpack thing. Um, there's a little bit of a plot hole that. I can't get over... Actually, my mom pointed it out when we were watching last night. There's a moment right after court escapes another daring situation. And...
0: And Laszlo's crib, yeah.
1: Laszlo, yeah. So, Anand Armis shoots Lloyd. Lloyd with a Trank gun. And right. I will say that is the only instance where a Trank gun instead of a real gun is used. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so he falls over... And then Court just like walks away with a gun in his hand. Now I and my mom would make the argument, why wouldn't they just shoot Lloyd? He's on the ground. He's incapacitated. He's clearly a threat. Yeah. Why don't they shoot him there? Mm -hmm. Well, because he needs to be there for the finale is Mm -hmm. the answer. So a little bit of a plot hole. I have to be equal toward the book and the movie. There's a little bit of a plot hole there. The other thing was that it's really funny at one point, Lloyd refers to Court, again, Ryan Gosling's character, as a Ken doll. Mm -hmm. And I was like, does Greta Gerwig have an in with the Russo brothers? hashtag ad for her upcoming movie yeah, barbie th- he had just been <laughs> cast
0: during the production uh as, as ken
1: so i thought that was kind of yeah, He's like can
0: someone put a bullet in Ken doll's head yeah i,
1: I feel like um, like that, that can't be i mean maybe it's a coincidence but it's kind of fun to think that it's not and it's a hashtag ad for her upcoming movie right. can't wait for that by the yeah. way but anyway those are my thoughts final
0: rating for the book in <clears and> the movie <throat> so the book A little repetitive, not as deep and fun as the movie. Even though it's my jam, it's not my jam executed to a T. I don't think I'm going to be reading any more books in this franchise. you are not going
1: to read the next 12 installations. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Although I I didn't
0: hate it. So I'm going with two out of four for the book. The movie, look, when we saw it in theaters... We loved it. We had a good time. We recognized that it wasn't high art. I was thinking a three out of four. When we rewatched it last night, so fun. We were laughing our asses off. Mm-hmm. We caught more stuff here and there. Great script. Fun. Again, it ain't Citizen Kane, but it does its job. And something in this genre that does its job right, I'm going to love that. And it holds up on rewatch. I might want to rewatch it again someday because mm-hmm. it's so fun. I'm going three and a half out of four. I said it. I said it.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I was gonna give the book a one. I'm never gonna go back to this book. I mean, that's. I think it's trash. Um, I, I was coming into this conversation thinking I was gonna give the movie a four out of four stars. Go ahead.
0: No, literally, no one's stopping I, you. I,
1: it's it's so I I don't have to apologize about it either. I just like last night we had such a riot watching it with my parents. And there were a lot of lines that I missed the first time around that I thought were just biting and they worked for me. So I'm going to watch it again. It's a yeah. two hour and three minute movie. And I'm going to oh. go. Oh yeah. Watch that's another thing.
0: Perfect length. It's
1: really <laughs> perfect. Length.
0: Movies should be two hours. Yeah,
1: I think there was like one part where it dragged, but I can't even remember where it was where I was just like, Oh, that's right. We have to go through this whole last fight scene. Um, but no, 4 out of 4. I mean, I Wow. I know. I know it's silly and I Yeah. But just even even like the brilliance, it's it's almost like, okay, I'm going to get into a whole other thing. But like I read Wicked and then I saw the play Wicked and I was like, how did you get this art out of this trash book? And that's how I felt about this movie. So that's why I'm giving the movie 4 out of 4.
0: Oh gosh! All the Wicked book fans are gonna come after you. I
1: feel like there can't be what we, like. <laughs> I, I feel like there can't be Wicked book fans, and that's something that I will like go down. I, okay, fine. I I read that book when I was in high school, but I have feelings about that book. And anyway, you, whatever we can you'll get. You'll hear off. nothing but, I, but
0: hot takes on I'm this just, podcast. I'm just really,
1: I'm impressed with how they completely diverted the problematic elements of the book Uh and like kind of like through phoenix rising (laughs) gave us this this fun little piece so it's not little it's globe trotting epic so and they also okay (laughs) they also left the door open for sequels so um in a
0: way that feels natural it's not like winking at the audience too much like there doesn't have to be a sequel yeah
1: but there that's might, the best way to leave be. the door open. I think open. one
0: was announced. Yeah. Oh, great. Thanks okay. for listening, team. This has been a fun episode. It's great to be back. And this season is going to be a blast. So we'll see you on the next one.
1: Film is lit. More than just a book report.
0: Amen. <laughs> New slogan. All right. Peace out, y'all.